That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Bernie Sanders reached out to the Government Accountability Office. And members of the Senate can do this. They can go to the GAO and they can say, I'd like you to research something for me. And the GAO does. And so the question that Bernie asked was, We know that there are a number of businesses in America whose business model basically is to pay their employees such low, crappy wages that those employees actually qualify for food stamps or housing assistance or Medicaid so that we don't have to pay them a better salary. We don't have to cover their health insurance. This is why the minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour federally. It hasn't been raised in a long, long time. But this is an actual business model to have your employees, you pay $7.25 or whatever you pay for your employees, and then the federal government, our, you and me, the taxpayers, we pick up the rest so that they can eat, so that they can have housing, and so that they can have medical care. So Bernie said, who are the companies who are doing this? Which companies are doing the most of this? And the GAO, the, the title of the report that they issued was titled, Millions of Full-Time Workers Rely on Federal Health Care and Food Assistance Programs. And what they found was that 5.7 million Medicaid enrollees and 4.7 million SNAP recipients worked more than 50 full-time weeks in 2018. That was last year that they had statistics that they could look at. And, and, who, who, and earned wages so low that they qualified for both these benefits. 12 million wage-earning adults enrolled in Medicaid, 9 million wage-earning adults in households receiving SNAP benefits were working in 2018. Who are the major contributors to this? Well, number one was Walmart. What a surprise. Number two was McDonald's. Number three and four were Dollar Tree and Dollar General. Number five was Amazon. Number six, Burger King. Number seven, FedEx. Number eight, Wendy's. Number nine, Subway. Number 10, Taco Bell. Goes down from there. And so Bernie issued this press release. He said, it's time for the owners of Walmart, McDonald's, and other large corporations to get off welfare and pay their workers a living wage. Sounds like a plan, right?
On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his website, so you can tweet him at profwolf, as in Professor Wolf. I've been reading about Boris Johnson, for example, in the UK, put the UK back into lockdown, or at least England back into lockdown. And the government is providing everybody with 80% of whatever their paycheck was up to a certain you know, threshold without even going through the companies. What lessons can we learn from other countries about how to allow an economy to survive and then to salvage it afterwards as a consequence of a pandemic? Well, I think the, the tough word that I'm going to use, however daring it may still be, is socialized medicine for one. Socialized medicine system, whether it be a Medicare for All or the National Health Service in England or any of the equivalents across all other industrialized countries except the United States, what those socialized medical systems do is organize long before a virus hits not only to handle it medically, to have stockpiles of all the requisite ventilators and masks and gloves and and hospital beds, but likewise to have trained personnel, to have the stuff distributed uh, properly where populations are concentrated, and then be able to mobilize really all the public and private resources needed to really wage war on a virus. We don't have any of that. We have blocked the development of a national health service. We've done it for for decades, as you well know, and as you have documented. And so we are left flat-footed and unprepared in the manner of other countries. The same applies to economic downturns. I mean, I'm a professional economist. I can give you the dates every four to seven years where every capitalist economy in the world has a downturn. We have words for that, recession, depression, bust, crash, collapse, downturn. I mean, the language is full because it's a regular recurring phenomena. You ought to be prepared. For example, if large numbers of people are suddenly rendered unemployed, Give them governmental financial support so that their suffering of unemployment doesn't spread to knock out all the businesses that they would otherwise have no money to spend in if they're unemployed. I mean, that doesn't take rocket science to figure out. You have to have a program in place. You have to have the services that can deliver that kind of cash to people. All of those things are missing in countries where the word socialized is too close to socialism and is therefore a society that runs away from the collective organization that is required to be successful. And that's why even in a country as close to us as the UK, they still in all have a national uh, Medicare for all, and they still in all have a powerful Labor Party tradition that means you've got to take care of workers. You can't let them, as we're doing right now in America, 25 million of them, simply go out there and be unemployed facing a Thanksgiving and a Christmas where even the meager unemployment compensation is going to be taken away. It's beyond words for me, to be honest. Yeah, this is uh, somewhere between sad and outrageous, or both. That's right. I'm also reading this morning that the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, the Israeli military, is specifically preparing for Donald Trump to strike Iran before he leaves office. 
they're saying to the public, you know, we're not doing this because Trump told us he's going to do this. We're just getting ready. And Pompeo is in the region and he just repositioned B-52 bombers into the region, which were not there before. And I don't know if they're there yet or if they're on their way. If Donald Trump was to start a war with Iran, what impact would that have economically on the world and on the United States? It would have multiple effects. One of the horrors of it is that many of them can't be known in advance. Iran is a major producer of oil. If you attack Iran, Iran will attack back. This is not an adversary poor and militarily unequipped, like, for example, Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Syria. This is a powerful, integrated, well-armed adversary, and it's going to be painful. Just as when Trump killed that Iranian general, the Iranians immediately retaliated with a rocket attack on an American base, doing major damage, even though that was hidden for a while. You're going to see alliances brought into bear. The Russians are allied with the Iranians, linked to them militarily. I don't know, nor does Mr. Trump, how the Russians will react, especially at a time like this. I don't know how the Europeans, let's remember, we, we, the U.S., withdrew from the Iran deal. The Europeans did not. The Europeans have good relations with Iran, are busily evading American sanctions so that they can expand their current business with Iran. They need Iran, and they will not be happy that once again the United States acting unilaterally damages them. You know, we have very strained alliances with the Europeans, and those strains are going to go to the breaking point if anything like this sort of disruption uh, were to occur in all of the expanded linkages that connect Iran with Europe. And finally, every other country in the world is going to look at the United States, particularly if this is done at a moment of uh, regime change, as being so out of control, not only to have let Mr. Trump do his thing for four years, but to permit him to go out under these circumstances, provoking a war as if with COVID, the climate crisis, our internal racial uh, conflicts, we don't have enough to cope with, it really, again, I like your language, is somewhere between sad and outrageous. And very concerning. Curious your thoughts on where our economy is going over the next few months. Well, you know, the British put out a statement today saying that their economy is in such bad shape that they expect the winter to be the worst, I'm quoting now, in 300 years. Our economy is now turning down because we did not learn the lesson that if you don't deal with this disease, it will drag your economy down. There is no trade-off here. You can't afford to reopen an economy at the same time that you don't have in place a fantastically more developed antiviral system than what we have. And now we're seeing the results. The so-called recovery is petering out. Unemployment is going up. Businesses are closing. COVID is completely out of control and will now produce yet again economic turmoil. It really does 
make me the kind of person who who just sort of shakes his head, hesitant to answer your perfectly reasonable question, because I don't want to depress everybody with the honest answer. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> somewhere between sad and outrageous. There you go. Thank you, Professor Wolf, and thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and thanks so much for being on the, the Frequently and today uh, also. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Professor Wolf. You can also check out his website, democracyatwork.info, or rdwolf with two fs.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here with you, exposing the con and conservative. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Joe in Seattle. Hey, Joe, what's up? I think it's important when we talk about socialism to have a clear and defined definition of what socialism is. Good luck with that. And what it has been. Well, I think there's, um, I think throughout history there's been two trends within socialism, but I think it's important for us to to find out what has worked in socialism and and base it upon successes and what has actually existed as opposed to an ideal that we're striving for. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't um, disagree. I think it's, a, I think it's, I think the distinction is the one that that needs to be made is the one that Bernie makes, which is. You've got people who call themselves socialists, like the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which was communism, and the National Socialists in Germany in the 30s, which was fascism. And then you've got countries that call themselves democratic socialism, or they call themselves social democracies, like, you know, Germany, France, all the Scandinavian countries. And that's really what he's, what he's talking about when, when he refers to democratic yeah. socialism. Bernie never uses the word socialism without prefacing it with the word democratic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's a mistake because it's kind of a capitulation to anti-communism, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's it's not a very strong argument because when you go well, down, can you name road, a country that ever worked as a communist country, Joe? Oh uh, yes, the uh, Soviet Union. China's working well. Cuba has three vaccines. Uh, I, you know, I was COVID. in the Soviet Union when it was um, the Soviet Union. I've driven in Trebbies. Yeah. You know, the, the well, those are the East German cars. Atas uh, were the Russian cars. Yeah, the GDR. Um, I've been yeah, both right. in, in Russia and in East Germany back in the day, and mm-hmm. it was not working. I, I can tell you, it was not yeah. working. Yes, they had you know universal education, and everybody had a job, and everybody had health care, but all of it sucked. Think about the historical conditions of that region. You know, and what they had developed. East Germany and West Germany were the same people speaking the same language with the same thousand years of history, and they were night and day. I'm not talking about East Germany. I'm talking about Soviet Union, really. Well, East Germany was the in, in their development of socialism. virtually identically to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, in fact, uh, Putin was the, the KGB guy in East Germany most of his career. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I think it's important for us to, to, to base our definition of socialism on what has actually existed and not some far-off idea that has never been. A, and I think you can do that through scientific socialist analysis. And these countries that we have seen throughout history, China, Soviet Union, DPRK, Cuba, they're using scientific socialists to achieve what they want for their people. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Cuba is coming around, but they're they're embracing some free market capitalism, limited uh, free enterprise anyway. Joe, I don't I don't disagree with Marx's analysis in Capital, but his solutions I don't think work. Joe, thank you for the call. Oh, welcome back, Patrick in Long Island, New York. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? How are you doing, Tom? I was uh, going through my uh, notes here, and I see that I'm at step number two for my prediction of Trump, which was that he would lose, but he would lawyer up. But I'm very encouraged by the fact that he doesn't seem to be gaining any ground that I hear of, so he has no case to take to the Supreme Court. And that was what I had feared was going to be my scenario. This may be repetitive and very basic, but I think it would be a good time if you were to give a uh, a good sketch of what the difference between a social democracy and what we have going on here, which is already a social democracy in some ways. Yeah. A social democracy or a democratic socialist form of government is essentially a, by and large, a free market capitalist based economy combined with a democracy, typically parliamentary, but it doesn't matter. But a democracy or a democratic republic, you know, where the majority of the people choose elected representatives and those elected representatives represent them. The big difference between that and a country that wouldn't call itself democratic socialist is that health care is considered a right in a democratic socialist nation. Education is considered a right in a democratic socialist nation. Housing is considered a right in a democratic socialist, socialist nation. And food is considered a right in a democratic socialist nation. So, in other words, the, the social safety net is strong enough 
that nobody falls through it and ends up on the street unless they're doing so by choice. And mental illness is considered part of, you know, uh, of the healthcare system. And so even if they, you know, if somebody's choosing to be homeless because they're mentally ill, there are services, you know, available and provided to them. That's really the difference. Um, you know, in our form of government, uh, or at least Rand Paul's version of our form of government, or the Republican Party's version of our form of government, you only get health care if you work because we have to scare people and threaten people into working because people are essentially lazy in these people's minds. You only get education if you're born into a wealthy family or you can prove your virtue. You only get a decent job. Oh, the other thing is uh, in a democratic socialist country, if you don't have a job, the government will figure out a way to get you one. They, they will even make one for you. And all of these things, by the way, go back to the New Deal, you know, with the exception of health care. And Francis correct, Perkins correct. proposed health care and FDR had to abandon it because of all the screams of socialism from the all white American Medical Association that did not. And, there, and the reason why I'm, I'm writing a book right now called The Hidden History of Healthcare. In fact, I just sent it off to the publisher on Sunday. Um, the reason why the AMA fought both FDR and Harry Truman on their national health care system was that the AMA at that time was all white. The Black Doctors Association was called the National Medical Association, the NMA. And as the all white doctors association, they did not want to have a system in place where they might have to care for black people. Racism is largely what drove where we're at and why we're at and why we don't have, you know, these things as rights. But that's a fundamental difference. It's a point that needs to be made over and over and over again. Alan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was wondering if the word commonwealth is the same as socialism and the word commonwealth predates socialism. I do believe it goes back to the founding of the country. Yes. Yeah, the Commonwealth of Virginia, Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Commonwealth was the idea that there are a number of things that we all commonly hold that represent the wealth of all of us, the rivers, the streams, the roads, the bridges, the police department, the army, you know, all those things that we refer to as natural monopolies and was very much a thing at the founding of the republic, whereas the word socialism really didn't get popularized until around the time of the Civil War when Karl Marx published Communist Manifesto and then Kapital, and, or Das Kapital, Capital. Uh, spot on. Are you suggesting that that word make a comeback? Oh, yeah, I think that would be a good comeback. Yeah, I, I am with you. I think excellent point. Stephen in Clifton Heights, Pennsylvania. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind today? I'd like to talk about Grover Norquist and the Americans for Tax Reform. Okay. As you probably know, or at least you may know, it's a failed experiment. It's simply not working at all. We What's are the eight you're referring to? His organization or the idea of uh, signing a thing that says no, no new taxes or what? It's the idea of signing uh, a pledge that states, I will never raise taxes, not even to balance the budget. That to me seems so strict, so rigid, that it, you just have to wonder, well, why are we so deep in debt, $24 trillion? Well, the, the answer is very obvious. It's simply because taxes cannot be raised at all. So we have natural disasters in this country, for example, and sometimes we need more money than is available at that time. And simply because of that, we're just strapped. We simply, simply have to borrow money that we don't really have. Yeah. And the simple fact of the matter is that had Reagan not dropped the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%, 
Clinton took it back up to 30, whatever it was, 38, 39. And then George W. Bush comes in and drops it back down another seven or eight points. You know, again, most of that tax cut was weighted toward people in the high end. And then Donald Trump does. If you add up all those tax cuts and you add in the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, that is 100 percent of our budget deficit. And yet these guys, you know, they're, 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 they're general hysteria. Oh, my God, look, look at the deficit. You know, we're going to go broke. You know, family couldn't have this kind of credit card debt. Well, first of all, the United States is not a family. We issue our own currency. Secondly, we've been this far in debt before. We were this far in debt after World War II. And how did we get out of it? We borrowed more money. Eisenhower borrowed more money and built the interstate highway system. And it so reinvigorated the American economy, you know, this massive infrastructure project, that within 15 years, we had largely paid off that debt. And then Reagan came into office. There was only $800 billion in the national debt by the time Reagan came in in 1980. And, you know, with Jude Wodinski's two Santa Claus theory, when Republicans are in office, run up the debt as fast as you can and you take the stimulus from that and take credit for a good economy. And then when Democrats come into office, pull out that stimulus and start yelling and screaming about the debt. And that's exactly what's been going on for the last 40 years. But uh, you're right. You're right, Stephen. You know, Grover Norquist, uh, you know, he, he was kind of the tip of the spear. He wasn't alone in this. This was something that was signed on to by every single Republican. And most of them are continuing to say this. I mean, this is, you know, I, you, you, uh, you listen to the Republicans on MSNBC and, you know, the, 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 the never Trump Republicans who have, have shows now on MSNBC. And every now and then the subject will wander close to something like, you know, expanding Social Security or improving Medicare or Medicare for all. And all of a sudden they start to, you know, just reflexively, you know, almost convulsively, you know, going, uh, deficits, deficits, <laughs> we can't have deficits. Stephen, amen. Thank you. Robert Norquist, by the way, has been a guest on this program many times. He's, oh, geez. What strange times we live in. News travels fast, apparently. Uh, other people are reading the Financial Times with the same, whoa! Claudia Sam, S-A-H-M, the headline is Trump trying to take the economy down with him. And then the subhead, his Treasury Secretary is shackling the nation's central bank and closing an emergency program for local governments. And as I said, that's exactly what's going on. I just tweeted, I just tweeted that story out just a second ago uh, with the note that in the Bible, this is, you know, when, when people would leave occupied lands and they wanted to just trash those lands so that the people who used to live there or who were going to live there next wouldn't be able to live there, what they would do is they would pour salt in the fields, which makes, you know, kills all the plants and prevents anything from growing for years until that salt washes out, and they would put poison in the wells. And that's what Steve Mnuchin is doing to the Fed right now. It's just mind-boggling. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? You've probably heard some of the nurses recounting uh, recent stories of people coming in with COVID and still don't believe that that disease exists. They're fighting, uh, telling the nurses to take off their gear, that they don't have it, and then they try to get a kind of a communication or a Zoom with the home, and uh, people say, let us in there. They, there's no such thing as COVID. We are, you're blocking us from seeing our loved ones and so forth. My daughter's going to be going into nursing school in January, and I know your daughter is already doing work. This is, yeah. I, I mean, we couldn't have fought World War II 
with this kind of situation that we have now of Americans fighting against Americans. It's just, it's just the stupidity is beyond what anything that I can even comprehend. What do you think? Right. I absolutely agree with you, Jerry. And I think it's really important for Americans to understand where this started. In 1980, this right-wing fringe that had been in the 1950s basically all outraged over the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the John Birch Society, funded in large part by Fred Koch. Fred Koch paid for billboards all around the country that said, impeach Earl Warren, because, oh my God, my white kids might have to go to school with a black kid. That right-wing <laughs> movement that just swept the country. I mean, my dad took me to one of these meetings in like, like 1961 or 62, a John Birch wow. Society meeting, and somebody gave me a copy of John Starmer's book, None Dare Call It Treason, and I took it home and I read it cover to cover probably three times. And it was all about how the State Department was filled with communists. And I was freaked out, you know, and that's why I went door to door with my dad in, in 64 when I was 13 for Barry Goldwater. But the point is that that movement was being funded by billionaires, or what in today's money would be billionaires, like Fred Koch and like the H.L. Uh, Hunt and his mm -hmm. brother down in Texas. And these guys were on a Jeremiah, on a campaign, on a hate campaign against government because they saw government as regulating their lives. Government was going to the Supreme Court, in this case specifically, but then Congress implemented laws mm -hmm. to even put that Brown decision into law. Government was going to force their white kids to go to school with black kids. That was their initial major freakout. And then that got added to with, oh my God, you know, uh, Richard Nixon signs the Environmental Protection Agency into law in 1972, I think it was. And then the oil billionaires, again, Fred Koch, and now his sons went into hyperdrive. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Now they're going to regulate the oil industry and the Environmental Protection Agency. Are you kidding? And the developers got in the act. Wait a minute, we've got to do environmental impacts before we can you know, rip up a forest and put in a, a bunch of, of you know, subdivision. And, and so this meme that developed that came full into full bloom in 1964 with the, with the nomination of Barry Goldwater as the Republican Party's nominee for president, um, the essential core of their argument was that government has become too powerful. Government is forcing our white kids to go to school with black kids. Government is forcing our businesses to not, you know, to, to stop polluting and poisoning people. Government is trying to regulate. Uh, the, other, the other big freak out was the seatbelt stuff. This was Ralph Nader in the 70s. You know, Unsafe at Any Speed was published actually in, I think, 67 or 68. But um, between that and Rachel yeah. Carlson, I mean, this is why in 1971, in the Powell memo, Lewis Powell specifically named uh, Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and said these, you know, th th who had started respectively the consumer movement and the environmental movement. And he said, these people are promoting communism. They're going to destroy mm -hmm. the American way of life and they're going to destroy the American system. And what uh, Lewis Powell refers to it as the American system four or five times in the Powell memo. And what he means basically is unregulated, unrestrained capitalism and, and all this kind of stuff. So this, you know, Barry Goldwater ran on this and he was still considered a crackpot and a fringe guy. He lost so badly in that, in that election of, right. of, uh, of 64, uh, 64, yeah. And then what comes along is Ronald Reagan in 1980. Finally, they get one of these right-wing crackpots into the White House. And the first thing he says to the American people when he's inaugurated on January 20th, 1981, his opening speech to America is, government is not the solution to your problems, government is the problem. 
And so these guys who didn't want government telling them that their white kids had to go to school with black kids and then expanded that to say we don't want also government telling us that we have to treat our workers well, that we have to pay a minimum wage, that we can't trash the environment. These guys took over our government and they took over the Republican Party. And this anti-government thread You know, at the time, back in the 80s, there were those of us who were saying, if this thing reaches its logical conclusion, you're going to have the destruction of the United States. What these guys are actively, openly advocating really is the destruction of government. And now you get Steve Bannon, you know, the months after Donald Trump is sworn in, somebody, some reporter said to Steve Bannon, what's your primary agenda? And he said the deconstruction of the administrative state. Well, what's the administrative state? It's called the federal government. What does deconstruct mean? Tear it down, destroy it. Our goal... Steve Bannon said, in, in effect, uh, of the Trump administration, our goal is to destroy the American government. And they have largely, well, they haven't largely done it, but they've, done, they've taken a good chunk of it out. And now Donald Trump is, taking, is running around with a sledgehammer trying to break everything he can. And frankly, I think one of the reasons that he's trying to, to uh, stop the, the transfer of, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the transition to Joe Biden is he doesn't want the Biden people coming in while he's in the middle of destroying all the evidence he can destroy. I think that they're, they're the going to do once once they once they figure it out that it's lost, there is going to be you're going to have shredders running 24 seven in the White House. <laughs> Back to you. Joe. And then and then in the process, they've also destroyed science, facts um, and so forth. Yep. And, and so now you and see faith that in people those. don't believe things that are right in front of their eyes. Right. Anthony Fauci has to have a security detail for his wife and kids and grandkids because he's getting death threats from crazed right wingers who have been believing this Goldwater, Reagan, Trump stuff that the government is lying to you. And now the government has gotten these scientists to lie to you, too. And, and, you know, and it just it just goes on and on and on. And it is so destructive. It is so destructive. Jerry, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Tom, it was very fortuitous your rant that um, you went on in reference to uh, Mnuchin and um, this stock market. But anyhow, I've been calling my Congress people all morning long, dealing with this McConnell leaving and taking all of his, his boys from the Senate home during this period, right? Now, mm-hmm. what I've been saying to my Congress people is that they were complaining about defunding or reimagining the police. This clown is literally defunding America. That includes right. the and the police in the, the process. And everybody, you see. And so it's like, where is the outrage with this? And this has been going on since... Uh, um, Nancy had uh, um, put forth out of the House the HEROES Act, right? Yep. This And that HEROES Act included all the municipalities and everything that needs to be funded in this space and time where everything is getting ready to collapse. So, I mean, it was like fortuitous, Tom, to hear you do your rant. So I think this kisses what you're talking about and that... Mm-hmm. Yes, what they're trying to do is to collapse the system, actually. And so it's like the oligarchs have won. We have been sitting up against socialism and communism during the Cold War and whatnot. But we never imagined that the oligarchs or the imperialist capitalists were also competing for America. And I think they have won. 
Well, I don't think they've won yet, David, but they're 90 percent of the way there. And and hopefully they have awakened enough Americans that we can push back and fight back. I mean, this is very much like the 1920s. The oligarchs had taken over. That was the roaring 20s. The oligarchs totally took over and they crashed the system and America rebooted in 1933. And I think we're about to reboot again. David, thank you for the call. So well said. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And you want to complain about people saying defund the police? Mnuchin just defunded the police in cities all over America by cutting the Fed facility to support municipalities. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bob in Mill Creek, Washington. Hey, Bob, what's up? Watched a movie called Hillbilly, and it's mm. about the uh, Appalachians and why people vote Republican. Basically, a gal was raised there, and, and it's mm. uh, about the uh, Appalachians and why people vote Republican. Basically, a gal was raised there and uh, in the Appalachians, and then she moved to California and became a writer and a producer. It's really worth watching Hillbilly. You know, okay. the Democrats, were, Democrats aren't giving them anything, and Republicans at least promise them stuff, you know. And Which is media, so ironic know, because it was the, the New Deal that saved Appalachia, the Democratic New Deal. Yeah. And it's Lyndon Johnson's well, anyway, programs that feed Appalachia and provide health care to Appalachia. Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, WIC. Uh, SNAP. I mean, these are all programs that Democrats passed. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Kentucky, uh, this is why you know, the, the Appalachian, the eastern Appalachian part of Kentucky, this is why Kentucky gets $2.41 for every dollar they send to D.C. It's because of these programs that came out of the Great Society, the New Deal. But I'll check out the movie. Thank you. That's, that's a, a great suggestion. I appreciate the heads up. Tom in Seattle. Hey, Tom, what's up? Yes, um, appreciate your program. I'd like to talk about Medicare Advantage. I'm going to have to check into it more. I'm going to follow up with that New York Times article you mentioned. But I'm with uh, Kaiser Permanente. You have them there in Portland. 
and uh, yep. they've got a great reputation. And uh, you're, you're agreeing with me, they do. Kaiser has a great reputation. Kaiser is one of the nonprofit players in the in the uh-huh. in the healthcare arena. And so okay. you're not going to get screwed as badly as you would get if you had United Healthcare or one of these or Aetna or one of these other companies. But if you have a crisis and you don't have a Kaiser facility near you, you're going to be in a world of hurt, Tom. Well, I guess I'm lucky there because I live in Seattle. They have facilities all over. So you're saying yeah. I might yeah. be okay if I'm living in Seattle? Um, so, uh, you, you, you may well be. And, and it, having already purchased Medicare Advantage, particularly if you have any pre-existing conditions, you will probably find it very, very difficult to go back to regular Medicare. Uh, you know, at least you picked one of the less toxic of the Medicare Advantage programs, in my opinion. I'm just sharing my opinion. But Social Security Works is all over this, and you may want to check out some of their podcasts. And SocialSecurityWorks.org is their website. You know, they're very, very knowledgeable about this. And I'm in the middle of writing a book about it, The Hidden History of American Med- Medical, or Healthcare, rather, which just went off to the editor last Friday afternoon, a week ago, and uh, will be out uh, next summer. But I have been up to my eyeballs in this stuff for the last six months, Tom. And I can tell you, it's ugly when you look at uh, what some of these Medicare Advantage plans do to people and how they they just screw people, elderly people, particularly as they get toward end of life. I mean, they just go out of their way to screw people. As, you know, Mark Pokan was telling the story on this program about his 90-year-old mother. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, no, we don't want to provide that. It's a tough one. Tom, good luck. Thanks for the call. Welcome back. Larry in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, a lot of crazy stuff going on and going forward. We have a demographic, uh, demographic, climate, economic, you name it, tsunami coming at us. We're going to need some good troop strength uh, and and try to get back some of the swing voters, uh, struggling couples up in Youngstown and Warren, Michigan, and uh, places like that uh, who aren't really racist or homophobic or xenophobic. Oh, they've, been, they've just been gutted by, by uh, the NAFTA deal that uh, Ronald Reagan and George, George H.W. Bush put together and, and then got you know, signed into law by Bill Clinton, among other things. I mean, the, the whole neoliberal experiment has just gutted, them, gutted, gutted their lives and the destruction true, of unions by the Republican Party. Yeah, spot well, on. Uh, just, uh, is that, was that your question? No, no, the gist of my call is relating to that. Uh, some of the optics we're seeing, you're in Portland, and so a lot of us are scratching our heads like, what is going on in Portland to a lesser extent Seattle than when something occurs in Minneapolis 1,500 miles away or even further that they're in the streets for 110 days? Um, it just, something doesn't quite fit in there. Uh, are these... They're not proud boys, but are they just loud boys? Are they going to be dependable troops going forward? What's going on here in Portland and, and to, a, to an extent also in Seattle and probably in a few other cities is that there is this, um, uh, this kind of marginalized fringe group. And a lot of this is being stirred up by a political cult based out of New York City uh, that Bob Avakian started years ago called the Revolutionary Communist Party. And the theory, and it's, and it's mostly young people who are politically naive, essentially. And the argument that they will make is that 
our political system and economic system is so corrupt it cannot be fixed and therefore it has to be torn down and the way you tear it down is through civil unrest and and disturbance you need a, a massive reboot and so the way that they're trying to bring that about is by being out in the streets every day and smashing windows and stuff like that here in portland wow. this is there's like maybe 200 of these people they show up every night they keep getting arrested and getting let loose and it's all happening in about three square blocks. Nobody in Portland, you know, I live in Portland. Louise and I drive around, you know, we, we go for rides just to keep from going stir crazy or go to pick up, take, you know, carry out food from restaurants. And unless you happen to bump into that three square block area, you would have no idea that there's any kind of problem going on in Portland at all. But Fox News has been camped out in that three square block area ever since George Floyd was murdered. And and they have turned this into a major television production. But there's no wow. there's no crisis here in Portland. There's no crisis in Seattle. Um, you know, Seattle really? had their little uh, you know uh, free free area there for a few weeks, and then it kind of fell apart, and that was the end of that. But um, this is this is more than anything else. This is a media thing. And these, for lack of a better phrase, kind of stupid left wingers, these Avakian followers are basically in cahoots with Fox News. They, they feed each other, right? They provide Fox News with the footage. Fox News provides them with the coverage. And it's like a symbiotic relationship. And it's, and it's uh, frankly, I think, you know, for American democracy, I think it's a, a destructive one, a, a destructive symbiosis. Anthony in South Bend, Indiana. Hey, Anthony, what's on your mind? My father-in-law worked at one of the steel mills in Gary, Indiana, and they had a very, very nice income. He sent six children to school, but when Ronald Reagan came in, all of that disappeared. Yeah. My second point is the, uh, the Republicans are so against socialist programs as they see it, but they never, never say anything about the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is one of the biggest federal socialist programs we have. And that's my comment. Or the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electricity to rural people back in the 30s and early 40s when big companies refused to do it because it wasn't prop profitable. Or the Rural Telephony Administration, which brought telephone service to rural people when it wasn't profitable. This was socialism. Or Social Security, which is a form of socialism. Or Medicare. I, you know, what was nuts to me was to see these Tea Partiers out there with their signs that said, keep your government hands off my Medicare, as if they thought Medicare fell out of the sky or some Republican corporation gave it to them. You know, no, it, this is socialism in the United States and it's socialism we all love. Our socialist fire departments, they're entirely paid for with tax dollars. They protect us. Our socialist police departments, entirely paid for with tax dollars. Our socialist army, where not only do we pay for their, for their, you know, doing their job, but we provide them with housing, we provide them with clothing, we provide them with medical care, and we feed them. Um, it, you can't get more socialist than that. So yeah, there's a a lot of socialism in America. The real pernicious socialism, though, is not people on welfare. It's the $600 billion a year that we're handing to the billionaires in the oil industry. That's the most pernicious socialism we have in America. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And the fact that for every dollar Kentucky sends to the federal government in taxes, you and me send Kentucky $2.41 from our taxes. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. The uh, subtitle is How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Venture Capitalists 
suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. It's quite a subtitle. This is from Chapter 21, titled Triumph of the Homewreckers. Donald Trump took the oath of office on a chilly Friday morning delivering an inaugural address that promised an end to the corruption and impotence that had widened America's historic wealth gap. He understood that his victory had been propelled by harnessing the public's rage and envy at having been left behind in the economic recovery, and he promised that he would not forget it. Evoking FDR's famous Forgotten Man speech from 1932 that promised to prioritize the needs of, quote, the man at the bottom of the economic pyramid, Trump declared, quote, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Politicians had prospered, he said, but jobs had evaporated, factories closed. Quote, the establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little chance to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. This all changes, starting right here and right now, Trump proclaimed, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. This is your day. This is your celebration, end of quote. The moment, however, belonged not to the great mass of struggling Americans, but to the new president's most ardent supporters, flamboyant businessmen who profited off the pain of the housing bust and were now poised to steer the ship of state for at least the next four years. As Trump reached out his hand and swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, his close friend and inaugural committee chair, Tom Barack, stood behind him smiling in a blue scarf and black overcoat. Afterward, Barack and Trump embraced at the U.S. Capitol's inaugural platform. The homewreckers had arrived. Barack didn't take an official position in the Trump administration, reportedly turning down an offer to be White House Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, or Ambassador to Mexico. Roger Stone told me he could have had any position he wanted, but working for the government would have meant making a lot less money. I don't think he has the belly for public service, Stone observed. Other homewreckers had no such qualms. If they changed the rules of the game now, they could make more money later. Steve Mnuchin, by now dubbed the foreclosure king by his critics, was confirmed as Treasury Secretary. His top deputy at One West, uh, the, the bank, uh, Joseph Odding, became the nation's chief bank regulator, the comptroller of the currency. Wilbur Ross, the bankruptcy tycoon who bought Florida's Bank United, became the Commerce Secretary, charged with everything from negotiating trade deals to overseeing the U.S. Census. Steve Schwartzman, the chairman of Blackstone, became chair of the White House's Strategic and Policy Forum, a group of business leaders who were to meet regularly with Trump. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase was named vice chair. Though the group disbanded over the summer after Trump's statement that bigotry and violence on many sides were responsible for a white nationalist's killing a protester, a counter-protester in Charlottesville, Virginia, Schwartzman, along with Barack, is said to be among a small group of outsiders, including Sean Hannity, who are put directly through to the president rather than being routed through the normal communications channels. Howard Marks, the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, a vulture firm that had bought and flipped 3,000 foreclosures, told Gordon, quote, the world is an uncertain place. A lot of people are unhappy with a lot of other people. There are a lot of things that people are upset about. So it's nice to have an evening where everybody's happy, harmonious, and upbeat, end quote. There was a lot of celebrating to be had. In June, the gang got together for the marriage of Steve Mnuchin and his third wife, actress Louise Linton, almost two decades younger than him. Uh, and then it continues from there. The book is Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz. I was talking with economist Richard Wolff.
we were discussing the fact that the Fed has basically created three to four trillion dollars out of thin air and use that money to loan it to big corporations, giant corporations, you know, publicly traded corporations, and to buy their stock, something, both things that the Fed has never, ever done before. What we didn't get into when Professor Wolf and I were talking about it yesterday is that what gave the Fed the arguable authority to do this was the CARES Act. This piece of legislation that was passed back in March that gave everybody 600 bucks a week, it also allocated a little short of a billion dollars to give it to the Fed. And the reason why is that the Fed, and I, you know, I don't pretend to be super knowledgeable about all the inside workings and how this all works, but, but here's the, the, the 60,000 foot view. The Fed can loan money to businesses that are in crisis and they can buy stock in the stock market, or at least they're asserting that right. But they have to do it with authority from Congress, and they have to do it with basically some seed money from Congress. You know, the way our banking system works, if you deposit, uh, you know, $10 in your bank, your bank can loan out $100 based on that. There's, there's, you know, it's called fractional reserve banking. This is how money is created in our economy. A small amount of money goes into a bank, and then the bank can basically create a large amount of money by loaning it out to people. And the Fed does the same thing. So Congress gave the Fed a bunch of money, a couple hundred, actually it was a few hundred billion dollars they gave to the Fed. And then the Fed was able to leverage that money to use to make trillions of dollars to extend the economic recovery, principally the stock market. Well, yesterday, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, sent a letter to the Fed saying, you can't do that anymore. And there's just a freakout article about this over on the Financial Times website. The headline is, U.S. Treasury refuses to extend some of Fed's crisis-fighting tools. The facilities, I'm, I'm reading from the article by James Polity in Washington and Colby Smith in New York. In a letter to, the, to Jay Powell, the Fed chairman on Thursday, Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, asked the central bank to return unused funds from five emergency programs ahead of their expiration. The facilities include... Two schemes to purchase corporate debt. Five facilities. See, keep in mind, this is stuff the Fed is doing to prop up our economy. Mnuchin is trying to, this, these are like the legs that hold up a table. Mnuchin, one at a time, is pulling these legs out. Why would that be? Because this is all going to hit in January. And the table's going to collapse on Joe Biden. That's what they're doing. So back to the article from the Financial Times. The facilities that Mr. Mnuchin is looking to end include two schemes set up to purchase corporate debt, five facilities created to lend to medium-sized businesses, collectively known as the Main Street Lending Program, one program to lend to state and local governments, and another to support asset-backed securities, that is to support the stock market. The Fed, in response to this letter from Mnuchin, issued an absolutely unprecedented press release pushing back saying, quote, the Federal Reserve would prefer that the full suite of emergency facilities established during the coronavirus pandemic continue to serve their important role as a backstop for our still, still strained and vulnerable economy. In his letter to Mr. Powell, the Treasury Secretary said the end of the emergency credit facilities would free up $455 billion, because it's a half a trillion, in funds that could be spent on other things by Congress. We want our money back. 
Markets reacted swiftly to the Treasury announcement. The S&P 500 futures contract slid nine-tenths of a percent, while NASDAQ futures were down a half a point. This is from, you know, I, public, I printed this last night, uh, but, you know, we can see this right now. Look at the stock market. The stock market is going down, and it's going down rapidly. Why? Because our Treasury Secretary just, if this stands, just stopped the Fed from supporting our economy and lacking any more direct payments to individuals, which all expired a few months ago. So we're no longer getting extended unemployment. And by the way, 20 million people are going to lose their unemployment benefits the week after Christmas because all this stuff is expiring. And on top of that, Mnuchin is saying the Fed can't support the economy anymore either. Which means that as Joe Biden walks into office, he may be well walking into a repeat of the Great Depression of 1929. That's how bad this is. And that's how vicious and mean-spirited these SOBs are in the White House. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, for months now, they've been preventing any kind of aid to average working people. Now they're cutting aid to people who are invested in the stock market. Lincoln in El Cerrito, California. Hey, Lincoln, what's on your mind? Do you have a definition of socialism? Is it, a, is it a redistribution of wealth back outwards from the consolidation of money upwards into the accounts of the wealthy? Or is it about who controls that redistribution, such as organized labor, or is it something else entirely? It's all of the above and something, all of the above, including something else entirely, Lincoln. And that's the problem. And that's why it's so easy for, for Republicans to use it as a cudgel. Socialism as a broad term, comes out of the notion that society takes care of itself, that one of the purposes of government is to provide for the society's needs, for the social needs, to make sure that people get what they need. Karl Marx redefined it in, I think it was 1856 was the year that Kapital was first published. And I think it was, in fact, I think it was the late 1830s when uh, the Communist Manifesto was published. But anyhow, he redefined it in fact, he, had, he wrote letters, he and Abraham Lincoln wrote letters about this. He redefined socialism as meaning what you and I today call communism, what the Soviet Union had, what under the Castro brothers uh, Cuba had. Cuba is moving away from that to a slightly more free market system. Louise and I were down there a year ago, March, for a week or so, and it was fascinating. Uh, and the Soviet Union has collapsed. China has reinvented that to be basically state capitalism. Marx's capitalism pretty much doesn't exist. The only place it's ever worked were uh, small communities, uh, religious communities, kibbutzes in Israel, things like that, where it's a small enough community that everybody knows everybody so nobody can cheat. But once a community gets or a society gets large enough for people to cheat, socialism doesn't work because it relies on trust. And then you get predators who emerge and you end up with the Soviet Union. Now, add to this mix the fact that the Scandinavian countries, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, refer to themselves as democratic socialist countries. And the, northern, the other northern European countries, Germany, France, Spain, they refer to themselves as social democracies. And so if you were to ask any of these folks, do you believe in socialism? It would depend on the context. You know, they would say, if you're talking about Soviet socialism, no, it doesn't work. If you're talking about socialism the way it works in Denmark, hey, we've got the happiest people on earth. 
You know, they're the most highly functional society. Denmark's economy is doing well. You know, people are not, you know, and not just Denmark, all across the country. So my personal definition of socialism is let's take care of people. And personally, I would think and I would say if somebody asked me that I think we need more socialism. The socialism that we have so far is our police departments, our fire departments, our public roads. In some cases, you have about half of the water systems and electric systems in the country are municipally owned. They're owned by the people. That is socialism. Our military is the most socialist institution in the United States. Our military hospitals, the veterans, the VA hospitals, the doctors are actually employees of the government and the hospitals are owned by the government. That's pure socialism. And Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security are all forms of socialism. And I would say that we need a little bit more of that. Our social safety net is not strong enough. We have too many people falling through it. It's why we have all this homelessness, why we have tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths every year. Uh, we have people, you know, in extreme distress, you know, emotionally and psychologically because they're because they live in basically a crisis constantly because the social safety net is not enough. And Franklin Roosevelt really tried to take a run at this, you know, not using the word socialism back in that day, but it wasn't quite the evil word then. But he tried to take a run at it with his uh, second Bill of Rights, where he said that, you know, a, a place to live should be a right. A good job should be a right. Healthcare should be a right. Education should be a right. We should make all these things if they're not provided by our capitalist system. If the capitalist system fails to provide these things, the government should step in and be the backstop. And I completely agree with that, you know, and you can call that socialism or you can call it democratic socialism or you can call it just, you know, once we do it, the American way. I mean, that's the Canadian way, for example. Every person in Canada is covered. Healthcare is a right in Canada. Housing is a right in Canada. They don't have these problems, you know, as many of the problems as we have here. Certainly they have some. Am I doing a decent job here, Lincoln, of explaining this? You're doing a great job. Unfortunately for the conversation, there are so many ways of misusing this stuff, but I very much appreciate what you've done. Yeah. In 1969, a bunch of us met with Fidel Castro and asked him, what about the right to freedom of speech? And he said, well, here in Cuba, we believe that people have the right to housing, medical care, food, education. That in the United States, you believe that the Second Amendment is that the, that the right to dispute these things, education, etc., right. is the most important right. Yeah, and 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 I you know I know that I'm not a fan of Castro's form of communism or socialism, if you want to call it that, but I do think that there is a middle ground, and that's what we need to be looking at and talking about. Lincoln, thank you for the call, and thank you for being with us today. Have a great holiday, and be good to yourself and others, and be very very careful. Please don't spread this virus. Get out there, get active, but do it from home. Okay, tag you're it. Have a great one. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.